on Savannah Communities. It's 7 o'clock at night. That's right, 1900 hours. And you're listening to the Polo Saugero Show, where the heat is on and we educate our community through interviews with professionals. Today's guest is the director of the Attleboro Area Industrial Museum, Carlton Legg. Carlton, thank you for coming in today. Hey, my pleasure. Uh, so, it was interesting because when I was younger, I'm not that old, but uh, in elementary school, we always used Just to go. On, <laughs> we used to go on uh, field trips to the uh, Industrial Museum, and then uh, later on, when I, I went to BCC for a little bit, and we, we used to talk about like, kind of like the hidden gems uh, in Attleboro. And so that's kind of why I went into to the museum to ask you if you wanted to be on the show, uh, because there's a lot of history in Attleboro, and I think maybe not a lot of people realize it, or um, maybe they just don't know about it. But uh, for starters, maybe some of our listeners might not know you, some probably do, but could you just give us a, a brief uh, bio and kind of your experience in Attleboro, what you, how you're involved, what you do? Well, I'm an Attleboro native. I was born here, and educated here public schools go big blue and uh, went away to college got a teaching degree taught in Attleboro came back got a great break with a principal I knew at Willett School taught elementary school at Willett School and Hyman Vine School and Studley School and Brennan Middle School back to Studley did a little work at the high school I taught mostly math and science but I did a little administrative work too always had a history um, bend to my to my liking so uh, when I retired uh, four years ago I said Jesus this uh, job came opened and I applied for it and got the job I, I worked in Adelaide my whole life too you know you always have those jobs I worked at Sturdy Hospital I worked at St. Regis uh, which is uh, a paper company over off of Starkey Avenue uh, I worked in uh, the uh, a bakery down the road here on Union Street at one time. I, you know, I did catering for, for Russ Morin at Morin's Fine Caterers. And, you know, I just have always done my stuff here. My dad was a factory worker, you know, busted his hump uh, for a lot of years, put his three kids through college. And uh, he worked at um, Clear Float, which is a... Um, a plastic embedding company they make awards and things like that and then he moved to vh blackington which does a little more than just um, plastic embedding we have a great little exhibit over at the industrial museum by the way about <laughs> clear float but uh he went to blackington did his embedding there for a long time then after a while he ex exercised his free will and he quit there and went back to clear float and he you know worked there for probably good 35 or 40 years so I know the city you know my mom used to work downtown when Attleboro was a hopping place on a Wednesday night when when they tried to revive it would Wednesday night market but yeah. every Wednesday night was like Wednesday night market back in the day when I was a kid you know there were sh stores and evening things to do and it was you know I mean Attleboro has a real rich and um, popular history and the Industrial Museum has a lot of that in it. It takes an industrial bend, you know, it looks at it through the lens of industry and how industry was developed here in Attleboro, but you can't separate that from the people. Mm -hmm. So 
there's a lot of local history there too. And I am not an expert. As I say, I'm the caretaker right now. I'm the current caretaker. The gentleman who was the director before me was George Shelton. He did it for 11 years. And my assistant is Leanne, and she's done it for six years or eight years, maybe nine now. And and we've you know got a real powerful and cooperative and supportive board of directors, and um, we're lucky enough to you know be as you said the gem, one of the Absolutely. gems of the city. It's interesting. You say you're not an expert, but I went in there for a good half hour, and I walked out. Having learned, you know, maybe five, six things newer than uh, than I had before. But so let's talk a little about a little bit about the museum. What's uh, what is it? Uh, what's the mission? What's the goal? What is it that the museum does in Attleboro? So the, the goal of the museum is to show the industrial um, past of the city, and through that, it's you know using artifacts and documents and old machines and whatever people have donated to us we don't have an acquisitions budget so people donate they give things to us so it's great you know they give us what nobody wants but it's gems for us it's priceless so we through that we tell the story of the history of Attleboro the past um, and the present and hopefully you know we motivate people to want to do something in the future, you know, to take the rich heritage of industry in Attleboro and develop it into something new in the future. So we've got old machines and things like that. We've got exhibits from different companies. Uh, the Balfour Company, LG Balfour, came to Attleboro specifically because of its craftsmen. Mm-hmm. And he started a, a company here in 1913 because... He had heard that Attleboro were, you know, he was looking. He he sold fraternity and sorority pins, gold and silver, um, and they were junk, according to him. They weren't well made, and he decided, took a big step. He was a man who took, you know, leaps, and he came to Attleboro with seven, and he hired seven people, um, a tool and and die man, he a tool maker, a hub and die maker, a, a designer, a stone setter, some office people, and he was a salesman. And he started LG Balfour right, right down across from where um, Cumberland Farms is in the old Lamco building there, yep. which was at the time... And I'm going to blank up on it. Um, it was a, another big going concern. And they rented him some space. And as they say, the rest is history. At its height, when Balfour was really cooking in Attleboro, they employed 2,600 people. So we have, we have all this in the, these, these exhibits in the museum, five permanent exhibits, um, actually six now, and then we have lots of other smaller cases. I wouldn't consider them full-flown exhibits. And they tell the story of of the city through its industry and the people, and we've got a Native American exhibit because they were people who are the Wampanoag people, the same folks who welcomed in the, the pilgrims were the people who started you know, here in this area. And, you know, I could talk hours on that. I won't. But, <laughs> but I mean, it's, it's really intriguing because you yeah. can walk down the road and see an example of where they were and what they did. Absolutely. It was interesting because um, my mother and grandmother and aunt worked at uh, Johnston's, mm-hmm. which was also a, another jewelry manufacturer. And 
it was weird because I mean, I'll remember one day in, in high school or was it middle school? I think it was middle school. We had our yearbooks and I look on the back and it said Johnston's. Like yeah. I had no clue. I was like, wait a minute. Am I, is this the same place my, my mom and grandma worked? Yeah. And then uh, you start learning more. I'm just like, Ju- Atterboro, I, I believe it was called the jewelry, ca- uh, jewelry capital of the, the it was the called. World. I, I, I always I always prefer the hub of the jewelry world. I, I brought a magazine with me. I looked. I grabbed an old magazine that I found when we did some spring cleaning, and it's um, industry in in Massachusetts, and it's a it's a Massachusetts magazine that promotes industry, and Attleboro's on the front cover. Yeah, May 1968, and it's all about how it has developed a diverse you know base. Now that's a few years ago, but it was. You know, Attleboro had its base in it, and Jostens, like your family worked at. I had a brother-in-law who worked there. Oh, yeah. They moved to Mexico and pretty much messed a lot of things up because they didn't have the skilled labor they needed. They had developed the skilled labor here in Attleboro, mm-hmm. and those are the jobs, I think, that Attleboro was known for, skilled jobs. You know, they people took pride in what they did. Balfour's, I think, uh, logo was uh, finest craftsmanship. Mm-hmm. And back in the day, and you probably don't remember this, on Route 95, there was a sign that said uh, Balfour, finest craftsman. And it was a huge billboard. Billboard. I don't even know where that went. You know, I, I have photos in a museum. Yeah. And we've got, you know, we've got an old yearbook from Jostens. Yeah. You know, and Jostens came here after Balfour kind of, um, the, I think it motivated Jostens to get a bit of the market, you know, mm-hmm. because after fraternity and sororities, uh, L.G. Balfour went to rings and class rings and college rings, and then he just blossomed out in a lot of different areas. Absolutely. And uh, at, at the museum, what are... Um some specific programs that you you guys uh because it's not just people just come in and look you guys also do other community events we do we we have a lot of we have some possibilities for people if when they come um like i said we've got five main exhibits we've got about a dozen or so smaller exhibits uh in in their cases we've got machines all over the place most of them we don't use but we try to um keep clean and neat so that you know they could be used at one time but i mean we've got lots of um, books and things like that we have a research library where when you give us a heads up you can come in and use some of the things we have there you know uh but we have guided tours you can do your own guided tour we have a lot of information written out so you can you know, if you're like me, I go to a museum, my wife comes with me, and she'll say, I'll see you in an hour <laughs> in the coffee shop. And it's usually two, and that's how it works, because she'll look at it for a little while. And that's the way the Industrial Museum is. We've got the lots of little talky things where you can talk. You know, you press a button, and it tells you a story about it. Um, some of that stuff we're trying to upgrade a little bit in the future. But... Um, uh, we do guided tours, so you get to listen to me for an hour, walking around <laughs> telling about about the building and about the exhibits and the people, and demonstrate a couple of the machines that still work over there. And we have a little make and takes area for younger people, 
um, where you can make yourself a keychain. We do outreach to the community in a lot of different ways. We go from schools to community groups to churches to um, any actually group retirees. The Balfour um, company has a retirees group called the Gold Dusters. I spoke in front of them. We have multimedia programs that we bring out to anybody who would like one. So, I mean, we've done things uh, for the 100-year anniversary of the city. We did a my predecessor, George Shelton, did a great thing called um, The History of Our Place and talked about Attleboro along with a um, member of the Historical Preservation Society, Barbara Hansen, and they did a great presentation. We worked with the um, Preservation Society and they pr use our space. We have a meeting room called the um, Pelletier Stack Gallery in honor of uh, one of our patrons, Henry Pelletier and his family. and. They'll give thing give uh, presentations on you know historic topics and things like that. So absolutely, already folks, we're with uh, Carlton Lake, who is the executive director at the Attleboro Area Industrial Museum, and uh, we're going to take a quick break. But after our break, we're going to talk a little bit more about the actual uh, manufacturers um, in Attleboro and how it all really started and the history of it. So we'll be right back after these messages. Are you looking for an opportunity to help others and give back to your community? Community VNA is seeking volunteers to join our interdisciplinary team dedicated to supporting patients and their families during a difficult time in their lives. Applications are now being accepted for our upcoming hospice volunteer training. A 20-hour orientation program will be held Tuesdays and Thursdays, September 6th through September 27th from 9 a.m. to noon at Community VNA. 10 Emory Street in Attleboro. To learn how you can make a difference in the life of another, call Community VNA Hospice at 508-222-0118 or visit www.communityvna.com. Um, hello, it's me, the designer jeans in your closet, the back of your closet. What am I doing here? Would you keep caviar in the back of your fridge with the ketchup and old milk? Yeah, I don't think so. So, what happened to us? I mean, have you seen my label? I used to summer in the Hamptons, and now I'm stuck behind a pair of sweats. Sure, I never really fit you quite right, and one of my pockets is so small you can't even squeeze your hand into it. But it's all about the look. And I look good. I need to get back out on the scene, so I can be seen. You know, going to fancy parties, getting expensive iced coffees, Sunday fun days, okay? So take me to Goodwill, where I can really make a difference. Your donations to Goodwill create new jobs, training programs, and education assistance for people in your community. To find your nearest donation center, go to goodwill.org. Donate stuff. Create jobs. A message from Goodwill and the Ad Council. Looking to make a difference? Have extra time during the week? The Literacy Center is looking for you. By becoming a volunteer at the Literacy Center, you could help someone learn to read, study for their citizenship test, learn English, and even help them with their high school equivalency. For more information on how to volunteer or join the next tutor training, you can view our website at theliteracycenter.com or call 508-226-3603. The Literacy Center, building a better community. Alrighty, folks, we're back on the air. This is the Paul Salguero Show, and today's guest, well, one of today's guests, is uh, Carlton Lake, who is the executive director at the Attleboro Area uh, Industrial Museum. And uh, we talked uh, briefly about um, 
we give the a brief bio on uh, Mr. Leg, and I'll talk a little bit about the museum. But c- could you talk a little bit about how it started? How did the museum open up? What was the first initial steps to uh, having this museum in Attleboro? Well, the museum was started um, by six people. Uh, a couple of them uh, were on the Chamber of Commerce here in Attleboro. One, um, one of them actually was the president. His name was William Ward. They called him Bud. And he probably sat in this office at one time. Yeah. When he was, because this was the, this radio station is in the old Chamber of Commerce yep. office, which has moved down to, to Plainville. But there was, uh, in order alphabetically, there was J. Jerome Coogan, who still is an attorney here in Attleboro. Uh, there was Mel Gautieri. Junior, he was a vice. He actually started uh, as a foreman at the uh, Ripley and Gowan Company and worked his way up to the president of the company, and then retired and worked at Sturdy Hospital in their development field. So he got money for them. Mm-hmm. Um, there was George Gibb. George S. Gibb was our is our probably our big Balfour connection because he was a communication director at Balfour. Between sixty and seventy, retired from there. Um, incredibly smart guy. Had his master's from Harvard. Wrote um, and edited the Harvard Business Review at one time. Uh, wrote several books. Really amazing guy. Came from an Attleboro family, uh, which was his dad was was John Langib who was a musician in Attleboro. And if you look up the father of music in Attleboro, you'll see John Lang Gibb. Interesting. Um, After him came Betty Phillips, Elizabeth H. Phillips. She was a genealogist and a historian and an all-around just incredibly talented woman, really good writer. Um, She did a lot of writing and research for the museum at the time. August H. Schaefer was an architect and a builder here in Attleboro. And I think that's it. That's six. And they got together, I guess, at a, at a meeting one time here at the chamber and said, we need a museum. And then they got some impetus from uh, the bicentennial, 1975 the president at the time said you know let's do some projects and make it last and they said what a great time to try this they wrote a little synopsis sent it into the state state liked it they sent it back and uh, they just started moving on things they were had the good fortune to get the building that we're in now it was the um Attleboro Refining Company for 75 years, 1899 to 19, well, maybe not 75, probably about 65 years, 1965, right here. And this was a jewelry district right here. This was a jewelry manufacturing district. The refinery took the scrap metals and it turned it into usable metal again, the gold, the silver, whatever they, copper, um, titanium, rhodium, whatever they use at the time. And at the time, Handy and Harmon bought the refinery. They were refiners. They were here for about eight years, moved to the Attleboro Industrial Park, and they moved out of this building. The building was 100, you know, 75 years old. Go to the Industrial Park, new buildings. So the building sat here empty, and it really lost some of its value and its shine. And somebody on the board said, hey, maybe 
maybe we could go to the train station or maybe we could have somebody come and uh, approach somebody over at the Handy and Harmon. It turned out they did and it worked out really well. So within a year of when the idea started, they gave them a deed, outright gave the building to them. And um, I, I talked to Mel Gartieri about this at one point and I said, so what was it like? He said, Carlton, I'll tell you what it was like. We had geek, these guys come in to do some cleaning up and this one guy looked at me and he said, what are you guys, nuts? This building is a wreck. <laughs> and he said, but we, we knew what we wanted to do. And Augie Schaefer was a nuts and bolts guy. He did a whole bunch of things with uh, mortar and brick and cleaned things up and had, I, had plans and sketches and drawings. And he was the first guy who planned out where this our beautiful yellow machine is out in the front, which is our icon, our deep draw rack and pinion press, which came from Leach and Garner Company. It was a gift, again, from Phil and Virginia Leach, who were the presidents at a few, one generation back. And, you know, there was, as I said, Ward, he, he had, Bill, Bud Ward had all these contacts with the, with the city and the other business people. And uh, Betty Phillips was a historian. And, for the first eight years, there was nothing. There was, you know, basically fix the windows, fix the roof, fill in the holes that are in the floor, you know, uh, brick up some of the windows, upgrade the medic, the um, electrical and the, you know, air conditioning and the heating and, you know, that kind of thing. Take down some build. There was a building in the back they had to take down because it was something they weren't going to use. And it just... It, for eight years, that's what they kept building a little space. They had some things they could display. They rented out the usable space to other people. So there was some income coming in. And uh, in 1983, they had their basically their opening of their first professionally developed um, exhibit, which was called the Craftsman Shop, and it's a silversmith shop that's in the museum, and it's it's really well done. And we've tried to emulate all of our other exhibits after that in some way. So, you know, it, it, it's amazing how those folks had the forethought to, you know, to push it and push it and push it. Uh, a really interesting story is when they were cleaning up after Handy and Harmon left, and uh, you know, there was a lot of gold and residual stuff well Hanny and Harmon said no we cleaned it it's it's not there anymore so one guy who was doing some cleaning of these old vats in the floor he said you know there's some this this muck this like um mud on those walls of those vats you should scrape those off did you ever scrape those down and I guess it was um Schaefer said I don't know so they did and they found thirty thousand dollars worth of gold in there it was like the pot of gold. It's a good way to fund it. <laughs> and they 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 brought it to Handy and Harmon because it was theirs, and they weren't trying to hide it. Yeah. And yeah, yeah. Handy and Harmon did the a great thing, and they gave it back to them to, for seed money. That's awesome. So I mean, it, it's it's a great story. It's uh, this is the jewelry district right here. This is the, you know, it was the the manufacturing district uh, of for jewelry, and you know, way back when. Uh, the you know jewelry wasn't king in Attleboro. You know they they started with buttons, little metal buttons. There was a guy named the Frenchman. They called him. His real name was Jean Jean. Gibb George Gibb and Betty Phillips did the research. 
dug back through the archives and found out that he was a, a French guy who um, had some connection to the Revolutionary War, knew how to stamp buttons out of metal and make them out of gold and silver and brass and things like that. And he taught that to other people. It was in about 1790. Um, another Robinson Button Company started in North Attleboro, which Attleboro and North Attleboro split around in 1885. And the Robinsons picked up on that, and uh, some people think that Attleboro was the first manufacturer of buttons in the United States. Interesting. That, that was what I was going to ask. Uh, uh, how old or how long has uh, Attleboro been a manufacturing city, or when did it all start? What was What's the, the earliest known uh, manufacturer or Well, I think, you know, you got to look at the way history goes in terms of, 1665, a bunch of families in Attleboro wanted to start their own little um, settlement here. Though they had to buy the land from the Native Americans. They got a guy named Thomas Willett, who they named the school after, yep. who helped negotiate a deal. They got a good plot of land, which included some of Mansfield, some of Cumberland, some of um, a little bit of Norton, a little bit of Seekonk, all those little areas. And... For a hundred years, from 16, probably 65 to 1775, they were farmers, and they didn't manufacture much of anything. You had a you had a millman, you know, or a cooper who made barrels, or you had some other small manufacturing, but they really weren't. They were more craftsmen, you know. Um, and then Industrial Revolution came, and it revolutionized the way people thought about manufacturing and not just existing but having a little more so they didn't they could make something and have a little more to share so probably in the early late 1700s 1790 1804 is the first i think that i know of and that was the robinson button company in in north attleboro um do you know where the um dyer lake funeral yep I, that I was know, basically know, yeah. the, the area. It's called Robinsonville, and that was where I think the original um, building was. And from there, you know, they did a few. They did a few um, small manufacturings like that. But uh, the next big industry was the mill industry. So cotton mills. You know, King Cotton here in Attleboro. Hard to believe, but they. They went from their spinning wheels to um, looms, and there were seven mills in Attleboro. A great example of the Slater Mill in Pawtucket, but Attleboro had seven of their own mills, and you can still see them if you look around. Mechanics Mill, um, which is on Mechanics Street, uh, over by Willett School, they're just rehabbing it into housing right now. The Dodge Mill, which is where... Um, Gary Demers and his uh, and Demers brothers trucking and rigging is that was a, a huge mill along with the Heber mill down the road near Willow Tree and you know and that's been turned into housing and there were I think four other mills that have been burnt down and um, like the Dodge mill and the Heber mill had contracts from I think it was 18 teens right up until 1975 with Fruit of the Loom was the most recent company they supplied to. So, I mean, 
mills were big in Attleboro. And you can see if you look in the community, the, the housing that was built up around those mills. Over on, I think it's um, South Main Street, you can see the small kind of housing, mill housing. If you go down to Pawtucket, where the old land and hope is in Pawtucket, yep. you can see the, the stone mill houses there. So, I mean, that's how communities get built, you know, and that's how what happened there. And, uh, I mean, it, it's, it is amazing how those things build up. From there, I think um, the Attleboro began to realize they could do more, and they had good craftsmen. They had immigrants coming in who were good at what they did. And uh, they started businesses and they worked in, in manufacturing of jewelry. And then there's always a secondary business. Like when you have a, um, a mill, you need machinery. So you gotta have a tool maker mm -hmm. and that kind of thing. Absolutely. Alrighty, folks, we're on the air with uh, Carlton Lake. Uh, we're going to take a quick break, uh, but I also want to mention if anyone has a specific question they'd like to ask Mr. Leg, you can uh, call in at 508-222-1320, or you can send me an email at uh, paulo, P-A-U-L-O, at W-A-R-A radio, uh, dot com, and then uh, we can ask him. So we'll be uh, right back after these messages, and we'll get a little bit more into maybe some, uh, specific inventors and different manufacturers uh, in Admiral. So we'll be right back after this. The National Diversity Graduate Fair will take place on October 13th from 3 p.m. to 6 p.m. at Rhode Island College's Murray Center. Attendees can speak with graduate admissions representatives from local and national colleges and universities. They'll have the opportunity to learn more about admission requirements, application deadlines, financial aid opportunities, and more. The fair is free and open to those considering graduate school. Those wishing to attend the fair can register by visiting diversitycollegefairs.com. There are many sounds in your day-to-day -day life. There are sounds that wake you up. Sounds that make you smile. Sounds that energize you. And sounds that help you relax. But there are some sounds that can alert you to danger and can help save lives. Wireless emergency alerts, now on many mobile devices, use a unique sound and vibration to bring you information about severe weather events, amber alerts, or other emergencies in your area. With critical information from local sources you know and trust, you can be in the know, wherever you are. For more information, visit ready.gov alerts. Brought to you by FEMA and the Ad Council. Are you one of the 30 million Americans who skip breakfast every day? We don't need to remind you that skipping breakfast can have a detrimental effect on your health. The Breakfast Place, located at 187 Pleasant Street, across from the Shell gas station, has been serving their customers meals made to order for over 30 years using vegetables from local farms and cage-free eggs. Owner Casey Darconti opens the Breakfast Place every day from 7 a.m. to 1 p.m. for breakfast and lunch. And for those on the go, all meals are available for takeout. Alrighty, folks, we're back on the air at the Paul Salguero Show, and we are uh, interviewing uh, Mr. Carlton Lake, who is the executive director at the Attleboro Area Industry Museum, and we were just talking a little bit about uh, different mills and different manufacturers in Attleboro, but um, 
being in the position you're in, I'm sure you have a love for history. And uh, is there any uh, specific inventor or manufacturer that that stands out to you or that you find interesting in Attleboro and maybe talk a little bit about who that person was and what they did? You bet. Uh, it's funny. I'm, you know, I'm, I've done my homework somewhat, but the, the deeper you go, it's kind of like uh, the rabbit hole. You know, it gets a, you get deeper in and you learn more. Um, I'm, I'm always, I've always been in awe of L.G. Balfour, Lloyd G. Balfour. You know, he had an idea. He worked his plan. But when you talk to people who worked for him, he was a good guy and he was a regular guy. Now, he came from the South. He had a house. He called it a country mansion in Norton. And he had his tennis court and his horses and his farmland and his swimming pool. But it was a log cabin, basically. And I guess now it's a dance studio. We have somebody on the board of directors who lives in Norton. He's gonna, we're going to go visit it someday. We're going to call up and see if we can take some photos. You'll, you'll see some of that sometime, awesome. maybe. But, I mean, Balfour was amazing because he realized there was a need for quality stuff, and he followed through with it. And he, when the Depression came and things were bad, he told his folks he couldn't give them money, but he wanted them to come in so they had a place to go. So they felt like they were still productive. Um, and from people who I know who worked at, for Balfour, you didn't make the most money, but you got a ton of hours. So you could always, you know, make up by working 80 hours <laughs> what most people work 40 or 45 or 50. Uh, you know, the, the old um, workers will come in and talk, you know, he'd walk through the plant and he knew people by name and he was affectionately called Bally and they would say, hey, Bally, how's it go? You know, what's going on? And he, you know, he was a very approachable and giving man. And he continues to do that because he had the foresight to buy gold when it was very inexpensive and he kept a reserve. And that gold ended up, after he died, was put in a trust called the L.G. Balfour Charitable Trust. And it's used for the local people here for education and for other community needs. Now, the, the Attleboro Scholarship Foundation, which I think most everybody knows is a, is a, 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 a place that kids who can't afford to go to school will tap into those grants. And the one, the one goal or the one you know, rule for them is give it back if you can. Now, I, I was a kid whose dad was a factory worker. We didn't have a lot of money. So, you know, they gave me money to go to college in New Hampshire. And when I was able to, I started giving it back. And I still do is when I can do it. And that's what Balfour gave him the seed money. And, gave, and they used the, the interest from his endowment to fund Attleboro Scholarship Foundation monies. Um, grants um, I know we get a grant. We've gotten several grants. The museum needed some work done. We're a nonprofit, you know, where we, we needed some work on our superstructure, the building. We've, we've applied. It's, it's not an easy grant process, but we apply. We get funded for it, and we do the things that we've uh, done. And so he was um, a really giving, really down-to-earth individual from what I've gathered from everything I've read and, and, and heard about. Um, and he had uh, good people working for him, too. And it, it's amazing uh, 
when you talk about him and people who knew him or knew their parents will come, people will come in, oh, my dad worked in the stone setting department or the plating department or, you know, was a graphic designer. And he would come through and talk to them and be around them and be really, um, you know, a real person with them. Uh, story has it that there was a woman who was stealing from him at one point and was dropping rings down uh, a, um, a toilet and there was a trap at the end so they couldn't get out and they found it and the embarrassment was enough for her he didn't fire her he said if you if you can handle it you can come back and work just never do it to me again so wow. i mean he he had a good heart and he had a he had, had a keen sense i think of business and he quality was number one with him you know and uh, uh and i think all of the owners of some of the businesses seem to understand that when you treat your people good you get a good product and you get a, um, a good effort, a good day's work. Um, people say, well, why aren't there unions in Attleboro? Well, there's a few unions, but, you know, uh, they didn't need them. Yeah. You know, they didn't need them. Why do you think, um, at, you know, prior to obviously now, when we were so many manufacturers around, so many companies, why do you, what changed? What occurred that now these companies have left Attleboro or, or even Massachusetts for the for that matter, what, what do you think contributed to that? Well, the, you know, I, we've had a lot of events here at, in the museum, and people ask me that question all the time. What happened to Attleboro? And I think, you know, it, times change. So, you know, what one person would settle for, another person won't, or materials could be gotten cheaper or labor could be gotten cheaper. And I mean, I don't think Attleboro really spent that, you know, I mean, when you look at some of their business figures back then, uh, I think in 1968, there were 8,500 people in Attleboro that made $55 million. And now that's not a lot of money. So, you know, the owners were making a good deal, but they usually funneled it back in. Um, I don't really know. My, my guess is that automation and looking for the lowest um, cost, regardless of how you got it or where you got it, um, and craftsmanship. I think you had to learn to be as good as the people here in in the jewelry industry. You mentioned Jostens, I think, mm -hmm. and that your family had had worked at Jostens. Yeah. And Jostens was a ringmaker. They were competition for Balfour. Yep. It was a healthy competition. Um, and they're a Minnesota-based in a uh, company yeah. and they came here and they went to i think california and they started their ring making and then they decided well we'll make more money so let's go to mexico to do it but they didn't have the skilled labor and they left and then they came back but they couldn't salvage the you know the deed was cast you know and yeah. they couldn't salvage it so i think you know looking it's a different time too i mean sitting at a bench and working at a bench is a hard thing for some people to do um it, it seems like uh you know automation and uh, computers had a little bit to do with that um and people change, I think, and owners change too. You don't have some of those owners of companies that they had back then. I mean, uh, I, Ernest Augett was uh, 
a guy at, who was the founder of the Augit company, um, he had a charitable trust, and, and recently um, that trust kind of played out his money because, but he was he gave back to the community all the time. Um, there there are those there aren't as many of those business owners. Uh, back in the twenties, there was the owners of the jewelry companies would pay to have a mini world series in Adelboro. Did you hear it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And and they would the ball players weren't making any money, so these owners would pay to have these guys come and basically give their give their workers a little a little glimpse into Major League Baseball. I think Babe Ruth even came to Babe uh, Ruth, to the as well. Ty Cobb, some, yep. I mean all the big names and they got fined by Major League Baseball um, for taking money. Here, I guess they they made between five hundred and a thousand dollars for a two week period for them, and that was yeah. a lot more than what they were making. So I think people change, mm -hmm. workers change, owners change, uh, materials and the way things are made change. People, people have become more consumers, and and they don't value a quality product yeah. as much as I can use that up and get another one tomorrow. It, you know? Exactly. I was talking about this with uh, a friend of mine too, who was. Who was involved in jewelry at one time, and we were talking about like die struck pins and, mm -hmm. and, and whatnot, and how although it's a better quality, sometimes people just go for the cheaper pin because it doesn't matter to them. They'll they'll get like, hey, why am I gonna do you know eight nine dollars for that? I can just get the same thing, not as great quality for the three dollars or the, or the four. So I, I definitely agree with the people's tastes have changed in that. I also think things nowadays are, are built to be replaced instead of built to last. Exactly. You know, I think my grandma's table is probably the oldest table around. And it's just since I was a kid, I'm like, how long have you had this table? It's yeah. just, but it's true. And then you see newer days, and uh, everyone's replacing things. But uh, I definitely agree. And as we get closer to the eight o'clock segment, um, I'd like to say. Uh, I like to ask rather: Are there any up and coming uh, programs that the um, the Industrial Museum has going on? We do actually. We've started a, a Thursday night at the museum, which we started last June. It was, um, I think, I mentioned to you, Paulo, that I'm at these community events. We go to the Winterfest and the um, Expo for the Senses, or we go to a, you know an event somewhere, and they say, "Man, we'd like to come down and see you," but. You only open 10 to 4, and, and mm -hmm. I work, you know. So it's funny. I said, well, maybe we can jiggle our hours a little bit. Uh, we got a grant from Balfour to be open on Saturdays, and it was, it, we, you know, it was a small grant, $15,000. Mm -hmm. yeah. But it was something that we experimented with being open on Saturdays for five hours. It's been a real success. So what we did is... Um, Without costing us anything, we just rearranged our hours, myself and my assistant, so that we're here, we're open on Thursday nights until 8 o'clock, the last Thursday of the month, and it's been real, it's been great. We, and now I'm trying to get a little programming in there. Uh, in the past, we've had some simple programming events there. Um, the Jewelry City Steampunk Festival, the first annual was last year. They approached us to be part of it. We're a venue for them. It's coming up on October 27th in uh, this year, and we're going to be a venue for them again. And there, uh, Heather Rockwood's coming tomorrow night, and she is uh, basically the woman who had the idea about it, and she's bringing a friend, and we're making uh, little robots tomorrow. 
So if you know if you it's made out of just odds and ends pieces of metal and magnets that you find around, I can't wait. I'm looking forward to it. What better place than the industrial museum? Plus, we've got a few new things that are um, in the museum now. We got a a, a great a gentleman who's retired and walks around and does some yard sale gems found us a drill and he says I, I would like you guys to have this but I got grandkids and I want them to see it too mm -hmm. so you know he, he wants you to try it and it's it's this great hand power drill 1904 it was used in a blacksmith shop it drills through metal leather wood it's great um so we've got that out we got a um, the African-American Inventors Quilt was donated to the museum by the Martin Luther King of Greater Attleboro Committee. Um, we just had a dedication for that in the, um, the last day of July on a Saturday. Uh, their board people came down, a few of ours did. It's mounted in our stack gallery. Uh, the Big Read is coming up, Attleboro, the Attleboro Big Read, which um, I know you're going to have, I think, somebody from there come talk to you some, on one of your nights. Uh, yep. That's coming up. It's actually it gets, got its kickoff on September 8th. The museum's involved with it. We've got a, um, an event on Saturday, uh, September 29th, where some of our board members, some people from Sensata are going to talk about what it was like to be a worker. It's a, the book is called Five Skies. It's about three gentlemen who work together on a project, and it's basically about how guys work and what happens, you know, in their lives and how they share. It's a little different. I read the book. Yeah. I'd highly recommend it. I mean, really good stuff. That's awesome. You know, great and, uh, things. Let's say there's someone out there that's interested in history, interested in the museum. Is it, do you guys have a way they can volunteer or do an internship? Oh, or anything yeah. Like we, we, we have had interns in the past. I had a great intern from um, Northeastern University, or, and she was awesome. She got us uh, our Facebook page up and running and yep. taught me how to use it and, and to work with it. I'm nowhere near as good as she is. And she was with us for about probably uh, eight or ten weeks, and then she got a job at the uh, JFK Museum. Absolutely. So we lost her. It, but, it, I mean, we're always looking for volunteers, work in our library, yep. help us organize that, you know. And and how can they uh, they reach uh, you or the museum if they wanted to get involved? Well, we have lots of ways to reach us. We've got the um, phone line, which is 508-222-3918. And there's a answer machine. Put your number on. We'll get back to you. We have a web page, which is industrialmuseum.com. And you can go there, and there's some uh, emails there. There's our Facebook page, which is the Attleboro Area Industrial Museum on Facebook. Um, you know, people, I run into people all the time and say, hey, you're a celebrity now. I said, I'm not a celebrity. Come down and work with me. We'd love to have people in. It's, as you said at the top of the hour, it's one of the best um, gems of the community, and I continue to use that word, no pun intended, yeah. because... Uh, it is, and once people get in there, I had a gentleman come in from California today, lived in Attleboro, and he said to me, I've been always wanting to come in, always wanting to come in. I see the big um, deep draw press, the L press out there. He says, uh, I said, you and 90% of the community have said that to me. I said, I wish I had, a, you know, $10 every time <laughs> people say that. But you come in, and you realize, oh, I'm going to come back. 
Absolutely. And uh, I like to always ask, I like to end the interview on kind of a, a fun question or, or, you know, we, we've done it. Um, I think maybe the, we did it the first, first episode we did it and the third episode we did it. And uh, Mr. Leg does not know the question to my listeners, but I always like to ask if you could talk, and since you have a history background, um, if you could talk to anyone in history and ask them one question, who would you want to talk to and what would you want to ask them? Red Arback. I'm a big Celtics fan. And Red was the coach when the Celtics started their dynasty. So I'd love to ask him why Bill Russell was so great. Absolutely. You know, I mean, he, and he, he was, I mean, I read some books by him, but I mean, I'd say, Red, what made Bill, Bill? Absolutely. Wonderful. Alrighty, folks, that's the Polo Salguero Show from the 7 to 8 segment. Uh, the next segment, we're going to have uh, Michael Dyer from the New Bedford uh, Whaling Museum. We're going to talk about uh, the whaling industry, how it relates to immigration. We're going to talk about the, the grand pan- uh, panorama that they have uh, uh, on exhibit there. And also uh, one of his books that he's uh, published. So uh, we're gonna be r- we'll be right back with Michael Dyer and uh, after these messages. Thank you. You're listening to WARA, 1320 AM, Attleboro. Welcome to the ACS Daily News. Today was the first day of school in Attleboro. It was a short one as school administrators called for a half day due to high temperatures which are expected to reach about 95 degrees. To see how the first day of school went at Attleboro High School, we spoke with Principal Bill Rooney. Today we opened the 2018-2019 school year uh, with a very smooth and successful opening. We had a half day today because of the fact that uh, the intense heat that is in the Attleboro area is causing an understandable level of concern uh, with district leadership and our school committee. And we wanted to make sure that, you know, our students got off to a great start to their school year, but also not put anyone um, at risk from a uh, health perspective. Our superintendent and our school committee are certainly evaluating um, the heat and uh, our facilities department has done a great job of doing the best they can to try to mitigate the heat in the building by putting in fans, um, allowing us to leave certain windows and doors open. But one of the things that uh, I'm always very confident in our superintendent is he puts kids first. And um, if a decision needs to be made that impacts the the rest of the school week, uh, then he will do that in the interest of safety. We spoke um, at freshman orientation the other night about how um, we are rolling out um, our student and staff ID badge initiative. Today, I was really proud of how our students um, espoused this new initiative. We had assemblies for our juniors and seniors, um, as well as for our freshmen and sophomores to start the day. And I I veered away from my typical back to school message, which is typically infused with a lot of blue pride and and uh, focusing on the the tenets of the of the pride five personal responsibility, respect, individuality, determination and excellence. Instead, decided to go more um, in a direct and somber tone to talk about the importance of building safety. Um, I shared with our students uh, two very compelling stories, one that just happened recently um, in South Attleboro, where a man was uh, in a church with a gun and he was very close to a, a daycare and a school scenario. But then also uh, the tragedy that happened in uh, Parkland, Florida uh, last winter. And our students responded uh, very appropriately to both of those compelling stories. And 
Um, I was very proud to say that um, in the uh, schedule that, that followed for the rest of the day, virtually every student and staff member um, complied with our request that they wear their student ID badge. I think the fact that our staff has really bought into this concept of school safety was evidenced by the fact that we had a visitor um, who is uh, known to our school community came into the school and uh, before he could even get to my office he was stopped by two teachers uh, who asked him um, where his ID was. So uh, I think that our administrative team, um, our central office leadership team made it very clear to our staff the importance of this initiative and uh, I was very proud to hear that example today as well. One of our ACS interns found out more information about how the first day of school went in the area. Today was the first day of school for many Attleboro students from grade one and up that attend Hill Roberts Elementary, Hyman Fine Elementary, Studley Elementary, Peter Tarcher Elementary, Brennan Middle School, Wamsada Middle School, Coelho Middle School, Thomas E. Willett Elementary, Attleboro High School, and only seniors and freshmen for Bishop Feehan High School. August 30th would be back to school for Bishop Feehan sophomores and juniors, and Foxborough Regional Charter School will be hosting an open house and block party for all Frickers students from 12 to 3 p.m. All across the district, you can expect schools to be closed on September 3rd for Labor Day. The next day on September 4th, we'll be back to school for Attleboro Frickers students, September 5th for kindergartners, and September 6th for preschoolers. On September 20th, Hyman Fine, Studley, and Thatcher and Thomas E. Willett Elementary School will be hosting an elementary curriculum night. And on September 26th, Brennan Wamsodder Coelho Middle School will be hosting a middle school curriculum night. Attleboro High School will be having a back-to-school night on September 12th and Bishop Feehan on September 13th. Supply lists for each school are available on their websites. It's only the beginning of the school year and there's already so much to anticipate. From ACS, this has been Ayumide Osho. I'm Jim Corbin. After a broiling breeze today, kind of a sultry situation tonight in weather anyway temperatures falling down into the upper 70s that's it still much of the night 80 or higher then tomorrow will start out very warm temperatures will be rising fast but it'll be cut off at the pass in the afternoon so i'm going for a high of about 91 tomorrow with a shower or thunderstorm as clouds build in the afternoon you'll notice a wind shift into the north and northeast by the afternoon that'll start to drop the temperatures a little bit towards sunset falling back to the mid and upper 60s by Friday morning. Clouds and a little sun on Friday, a breeze out of the northeast, quite a bit cooler. Highs in the low and mid-70s. We will get the Labor Day weekend off and the month of September off on Saturday, mainly sunny with highs in the 70s. For 1320 AM, I'm Jim Corbin. Mental health, just like physical health, is an important part of every person's overall well-being. Learn about the many issues surrounding mental health by listening to our new show, Exploring Mental Illness, everything you wanted to know but were too afraid to ask, on Mondays at 6 p.m. on WARA 1320 AM. You can also listen for free by subscribing to the Exploring Mental Illness podcast on the iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and TuneIn platforms. Find out more information by going to WARARadio.com and clicking on podcasts. 
Alrighty, welcome back, folks. This is the Paulo Salguero Show. We just ended our first segment with uh, Mr. Lake. Uh, we were just talking about the Attleboro Area Industrial Museum. And for our second uh, portion of uh, our show, we're going to have, uh, we have uh, Michael Dyer, who is a curator of maritime history for the New Bedford Whaling Museum um, in studio. Uh, Mr. Dyer, thank you. You're very welcome. Thanks for the invitation. My pleasure. Um, I like to start off uh, all the interviews uh, of our guests because some of our listeners might know you, some of them might not know. But uh, could you give us a little uh, bit of a, a background on you, a little bio, kind of your experience of what you uh, do at the museum currently? Sure, yeah. I've been, at, I've been doing whaling history professionally for 25 years now. I, uh, I'm a, a strong advocate of uh, maritime history in the American experience, especially in, uh, as you say, you know, educational programs I think are a great way to to broaden the, the reach of that of that very really very important story that uh, that we don't we don't learn very much about uh, outside of museums and so you know I, I took it upon myself oh in the in the 1980s uh, to really really focus on on maritime history uh, and and museums because museums are such interesting places to you know really to be and that's where the great collections are and that's where the great stories are absolutely <coughs> excuse me and uh it was in, we talked a little bit prior but um my intro to the whaling was kind of i did a, a project uh, for one of my history classes in the beginning of college uh, it might have been my sophomore year and uh it was on portuguese immigration the waves of portuguese immigration and then that's when I started learning about the whaling industry because uh, that's how a lot of the immigrants came here from the Azores and from the Cape Verde Islands was through uh, these whaling ships because they would go on their voyages and come back. Uh, could you talk a little bit about how that, how the whaling industry started, how it re even relates to immigration? Could you explain a little bit of that to our listeners? Hmm. Um, well, you know, the commercial whaling started in the in the very early part of the of the 17th century in in northern Europe and by the time the Europeans began to settle in North America uh, the commercial whaling was really a, a significant part of, of of the culture you have to keep in mind that at that time you know right up until gosh really until the the transcontinental railroad in, in 1869 seafaring was how business was was done see that's where all that's where the money was made and that's where the the trade routes were and and arguably the entire quote-unquote discovery of north america was was really a, a maritime experience as as europeans were trying to get to the orient to trade um, yankee whaling grew up really uh significantly in the early part of the 18th century so in the 1700s and by the 1760s you know these are these Americans largely Nantucketers but but also south south coast of of uh, Massachusetts and significantly Newport Rhode Island were whaling as far uh, as far to the east as as the Azores and you know there are records of Azorean sailors coming back to the, the colonies and settling in Martha's Vineyard and settling in Nantucket, you know, in, in, the, in the 1700s. So uh, this was a very s small, relatively small uh, kind of, a, kind of a, an industrial 
endeavor compared to what would happen later when it became a very, very large industrial endeavor. Um, so, you know, a, a sloop or a schooner sailing out of, uh, out of Dartmouth, out of the Akushnet River in the 18th century might have, might have 12 people on board. Um, by the, you know, by, by 1820, 1825, you're looking at a 300-ton ship with a crew of 30 people. And very often, uh, whalers would stop at islands for provisions. And this was just simply part of the way business was done because it's cheap to get provisions at islands and you need firewood uh, and you need fresh water and you need vegetables, you know, otherwise the crew gets scurvy and dies. Um, and you don't want that. So you stop at the, at the various archipelagos in the Atlantic Ocean, including the Azores and including the Cape Verde Islands, uh, and also, uh, and also in, the, uh, in, the, in the West Indies. Um, oddly enough, and this is a perplexing little puzzle, you don't see the same kind of, of, of people moving on whalers from the West Indies uh, into, into places like Provincetown or Nantucket or New Bedford or New London, uh, as you do from the islands in the Atlantic, where, it, where many, many people um, uh, joined up. And I, it, it might be cultural. I mean, you know, a large Catholic family, uh, in the Azores, you know, the, the oldest son gets, uh, you know, has the best opportunities. The, any, any younger sons are either going to be conscripted into the military um, or they can join up with a, with a passing whaler. And, and you know, whalemen, whalers, whalers needed, uh, they needed seamen. They needed hardworking guys uh, who, who, who weren't afraid of whales, and that's what they got with with Azorian and, and Cape Verdean whalemen. Uh, Azorian whalemen very early, uh, not very early, I shouldn't say that. And by the middle of the of the 19th century, you begin to see Azorian whalemen who are who are officers uh, and are learning to navigate and becoming uh, becoming masters of ships in their own right. Later in the 19th century, as the as the whale fishery went into decline, and the and the entire sort of complexion and demographic of the industry changed, you see the same phenomenon with uh, Cape Verdean mariners, uh, and Cape Verdean men become uh, rise up through the fishery and become officers and masters. Absolutely wonderful. Already, folks, we're uh, in studio with uh, Mr. Michael Dyer, who is the curator of uh, maritime history at the New Bedford Whaling Museum. We're going to take a quick break. Uh, we're talking about the whaling industry. Uh, we're going to get into uh, the grand panorama uh, of a whaling voyage that they have uh, in studio. And then later on, we'll talk about uh, Mr. Dyer's book. Uh, but right now, we're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back after these messages. Running from Anxiety and the Attleboro Farmers Market will hold the first annual More Cowbell 5K race on September 15, 2018. The race will start and finish at the Farmer's Market, located at 201 County Street in Attleboro. The 5K will start at 9 a.m., followed by a kids' one-mile race at 10 a.m. Both walkers and runners may participate. Registration is $30 for the 5K and $10 for the kids' mile. All participants will receive a cowbell medal at the end of the race. Post-race refreshments will also be available. Awards will be given to the top three male and female finishers, for more information or to register, visit the Attleboro Farmers Market on Saturdays from 9 a.m. to 1 p.m. Visit runningfromanxiety.org or call 508-838-1371. You look nice. How was work? 
Well, it was fourth period civics. <clears throat> the kids were giving me the third degree. Was a UFO seen hovering over Washington, D.C.? Was a fisherman attacked by a 320-pound shrimp? They'd been bitten by the fake news bug, all right, and it was holding on like a driver's ed student to a steering wheel. How was I gonna get a bunch of wide-eyed kids to wise up about what they see on the Internet? Then it hit me, like a dodgeball on field day. The name of the game was News Snoops. Each student got an article and two minutes to decide if it was credible or a fake. They were able to use fact-checking sites to get the cold, hard truth. Now the little hotshots are even teaching their gullible grannies a thing or two about phony news. But how was your day? Pretty good. I got a new title today. Office birthday party planner. Oh, fun. Teachers just have better work stories. If you want to create a job worth talking about, head to teachdfw.org. Brought to you by Teach and the Ad Council. Amigo Inc. is currently looking for qualified individuals to help fill various positions within the company. Located at 33 Perry Avenue, Amigo is offering full and part-time positions in addition to per diem opportunities. Amigo offers first, second, and third shift availability to help fit your needs and theirs. When you join Amigo, you will help to create a positive client experience for all the individuals we have the privilege of serving on a daily basis. For more information on all positions available, please call 508-455-6200 or visit our website at amigoinc.org. The laws that govern us are constantly evolving, and it is hard to stay up to date as time passes. This week on AACS, watch The Grand Bargain and become familiar with how small business owners are affected by the legislative ballot question package. You can watch this program and all of our quality programs from around the area in high definition on the AACS Roku channel. Alrighty, folks, welcome back to the Paulo Salguero Show. Uh, in studio today, we have Mr. Michael Dyer, who is a curator of maritime history at the New Bedford Whaling Museum. We talked a little bit about um, some brief uh, history about how it relates to immigration. Uh, Mr. Dye, I was doing a little bit of, of reading, uh, obviously, prior to our, our interview, and I was seeing that it, it was said that there was a decline in the whaling industry from the around the 1870s and the 1800s. Could you, could you talk a little bit about how the whaling industry, kind of like the rise and fall of it, maybe why it was so prominent at one point and then it began to decline? Oh, sure. Uh, what's unique about American whaling is the hunting of the sperm whale on in the deep ocean. Americans figured out a way to build a furnace and install it on on the deck of their ship, and which means that you can travel to high seas, kill sperm whales, strip the blubber, cut off the head, bale the spermaceti out of the nose. Uh, you take that blubber, you chop it up into pieces, and you cook it in the furnace. And once it's all cooked and there's beautiful uh, clear oil, that oil can be stowed in casks. And the, the, the spermaceti uh, baled out of the nose of the whale could also be stowed stowed in casks, which means that now you have an industrial enterprise at sea. They don't, it's not short whaling. Uh, this was a unique innovation in uh, in whaling, and the the tackling and the hunting of the sperm whale was also unique. Sperm whales produce an oil that burns very beautifully, clean and bright, and spermaceti can be refined into candles, which doesn't seem like much to us today, but, you know, in 1750, a candle is a good thing, especially one that burns really bright and nice and clear. So for, you know, a hundred years... Uh, spermaceti candles and sperm oil really drove the 
drove the industry. And because Americans were so very, very good at hunting sperm whales, um, the, the, the fleet grew and millions and millions and millions of dollars were made and uh, entire communities grew up around this industry. The country grew too. So what started off as a colonial endeavor grew into a major industry, but it could never supply the needs of the American nation as it grew and pushed westward. The discovery of petroleum in Pennsylvania really did contribute to creating products that burned easier and cheaper than, than the very expensive uh, outfitting of a whale ship to go to sea to hunt sperm whales for four years in the Pacific Ocean. Um, and uh, so with the discovery of petroleum, there was, there was a decline. Uh, also, again, whaling is very, very expensive to do, and owners, they like to make money. They don't necessarily like to go whaling, necessarily. It was great when the money was easy, but after, uh, you know, by the, by the time of the Civil War and shortly thereafter, American merchants, New Bedford merchants, began investing in textile mills and shifted away from whaling. At the same time, the garment industry really took a, a turn uh, uh, for the shapely female figure. And that shapely female figure was enabled through long plates of baleen that were, that were taken from the mouths of bowhead whales. So the bowhead fishery managed very well till the, uh, till the late 19th century, but the sperm whale fishery ran into great decline as the money was put elsewhere. Interesting. <coughs> Excuse me. I, you mentioned uh, the sperm whale, too. I remember... Um might have been my freshman year. Or, or, yeah, might have been my freshman year. We read, uh, I believe it's called "In the Heart of the Sea," and uh, that's a lot of that book is talking about what you just mentioned, um, uh, the oil and how it was used for uh, just different uh, uh, material. You mentioned candles, but it was just so many different uh, things. And uh, you know, as a freshman in college, you, you didn't think anything like what else you were going to use whales for, you know. And so it was interesting to learn all the different. Um, aspects that it, that were in whales um so let's transition a little bit into um kind of the museum you have you guys have a large rel really big uh panorama <laughs> yeah it's <laughs> I, really big i think i read it's the largest panorama it's the longest painting in north america okay so i yeah that's what i was reading could you and, and for our listeners it's uh, the grand panorama of a whaling voyage uh, around the world correct that's correct could you talk a little bit about um First, how, how big is it exactly? Well, it's eight and a half feet high and uh, 1,275 feet long. It's, uh, uh, there are four rolls of this panorama, and each roll is about 300 feet long. And uh, it, the panoramas were traveling picture shows. And there would be a narrator, and there would be this big painting of, you know, there were like the Battle of Waterloo or a trip down the Mississippi River. And in, and in the mid-1840s, uh, actually 1847, 1848, a, a, a New Bedford artist and whaleman and failed businessman named Benjamin Russell created a whaling panorama with the help of a Fairhaven, Massachusetts sign painter. And the, these two fellows painted this thing. And they uh, and Russell took it on the road. He was trying to make some money. Um, and 
uh, and and that's what it is and it managed to survive so this painting <laughs> survived uh, it was we don't there's a there's a we don't know how it survived but it was but it was donated to the museum I think in 1918 and uh, and it sat in the museum for many many years until a curator in the uh, late 1950s undertook to preserve it which he did and uh, and it went on a public display in, in in 1961 and then it's and then portions of it went on exhibit thereafter but the whole thing was never put on exhibit again w being a museum you know one of one of our key uh you know the important parts of our mission is, is preservation and uh, and education um, but the preservation of the panorama was really important, so we raised a lot of money. Uncle Sam helped. The National Park Service helped. Uh, other private funders helped. And uh, we hired textile conservators to take care of the cloth. And, uh, and I spent a great deal of time studying the painting itself. We, we have in-house digital uh, photographer, superb photographer, Michael Lapides, who took high-resolution digital images of of the painting and uh, and we uh, studied it and studied it and we came up with a way that we were going to exhibit it and the, the the board of the New Bedford Whaling Museum and the senior staff of the Whaling Museum managed to secure a, a, a site to exhibit this thing and we worked it all out and we put it up we put it up it's on exhibit for free you can go down to the Kilburn Mill at the end of uh, at the end of Route 18 it's on the third floor, and it's a fabulous thing. No joking. Absolutely. And, and to give, um, when we mentioned survival of this, this was painted in 1848? Yes. Is that correct? 1848. So it's been around for a while. And uh, to, to give, it, to put it in perspective, too, because I'm amazed by the size of, of this painting. I read, is it equivalent to about 14 blue whales? Yeah, that length? sounds about right. It's about 14 <laughs> blue whales. So it's, uh, it's taller than the Empire State Building. Put it that way. Wow, <laughs> that's, it's amazing. And um, I was also, um, you know what? Since we're, we're getting close to our break. So, uh, already, folks, we're in studio with uh, Michael Dyer, who is uh, the curator of maritime history at the New Bedford Whaling Museum. We're talking about the grand uh, panorama of a whaling voyage around the world that they have uh, an exhibit. It's uh, 1,275 feet yes. long, which is equivalent to 14 blue whales, folks. Uh, <laughs> and uh, we're going to talk a little bit more about it, and then we're also going to talk about uh, Mr. Dyer's book that he has. We'll be right back after these messages. Stop and Shop is sponsoring a free Healthy Kids Summit at Gillette Stadium on Wednesday, September 19th from 4 to 6 p.m. This will be an afternoon of play and fitness. Kids will participate in games to learn about exercise and nutrition. The Healthy Kids Summit is open to all kids ages 6 to 14. The event is limited to 400 kids and their parents or guardians. Okay, men. This is your time. Maybe you didn't choose this, but you're here now. You're going to go out there and be an all-star caregiver. It's up to you. So what are you gonna do? You're gonna go grocery shopping, cook, clean, be there emotionally and physically. You gotta dig deeper. Drive them to physical therapy, doctor's appointments. Don't you forget about the pharmacy. I know you won't, because that's what caregivers do. Don't give up. Don't ever give up. This is your time to show the world your family and yourself that you're tougher than tough. Now go out there and be the best caregiver this world has ever seen. 
Caregiving is tougher than tough. Find the care guides you need at aarp.org caregiving. A public service announcement brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. For over 47 years, Amigo Inc. has been offering services and programs for children and adults with autism spectrum disorders and other disabilities. Located at 33 Perry Avenue in Attleboro, Amigo has been committed to building vital relationships while expanding their community ties on the local level. Amigo provides day programs, transitional planning, and a continuum of services to support all ages. For more information, you can visit their website at amigoinc.org. Alrighty, folks, we're back on the air, the Polo Sol Girls Show. We're with uh, Michael Dyer, who is a curator of maritime history at the New Bedford Whaling Museum. Uh, we're ta- we talked a little bit about uh, the whaling industry in general, how it related to uh, immigration. Uh, we talked briefly about the grand panorama of a whaling voyage around the world, which to give our v- uh, listeners uh, a little bit of perspective, maybe you're just tuning in, it's uh, 1,275 feet long, which is equivalent to 14 blue whales. And you can actually see it uh, on exhibit. Uh, and uh, Mr. Dyer uh, briefly uh, talked about the, the painter, uh, Benjamin Russell, could you? And th- this was painted in uh, 1848. Uh, could you talk a little bit about uh, Benjamin Russell himself? Uh, just a little bit of brief history on, on who oh, he was. Oh, sure. You know, Benjamin Russell was a descendant of the, of the original founder of the, of the town of Bedford Village in the colonial era in the 1760s. And he... And his father and his uncle, they, they all grew up as, uh, you know, pursuing whaling and maritime trades. And Benjamin uh, did the same thing. Uh, he just, he, he, he started off as a grocer, as many merchants did, and he invested his money in whaling. Uh, he made some money. He sat on the board of the Marine Bank. Uh, however, what happened was the, in the during the Andrew Jackson administration, during the consolidation of the National Bank, the bankers in New Bedford got very very nervous and they and they called in all their debts and and Benjamin, his uncle and his father, all of them went uh, went bust, and Benjamin was broke and. Uh, he had to go whaling, uh, or he chose. This is an interesting. This is interesting. I think he chose to go whaling specifically to keep a sketchbook, probably to pursue a career as an artist in New Bedford, painting ships for the merchants of the city and the masters of the city. And this was how he was going to make his living. Somewhere along the line, he decided he was going to make this panorama. Interesting. And. Um this panorama has traveled a lot, hasn't it? <laughs> it really, yes, it has traveled a lot. In the eighteen, in the early eighteen fifties, it, you know, in eighteen forty-eight, it went from New Bedford to 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 Boston to New York. Um, it it also traveled to Louisville, Kentucky, and by steamboat down uh, down the river to to St. Louis, and then back up the river toward Detroit and Cleveland and Buffalo. Uh, it, it visited Baltimore. Uh, and this was, you know, made possible by, largely via the railroad, and uh, and largely via steamboat. And the what was the the, the year that it was la- uh, last displayed? Nineteen sixty one. It was on, in a in a uh, in a furniture warehouse uh, on Pope's Island, right out right. Right halfway between New Bedford and Fairhaven, right, there's an island right in the middle of the river, and, and that's where the bridge runs, and that's where it was. Interesting. And what happened, um, why wasn't it on display after, and kind of w- what brought it uh, back to, to life, basically? What, what, what occurred throughout that, that time? Well, a number of things happened, and we, we were doing some 
there was some physical expansion at the museum and we had to reallocate some resources as far as storage was concerned and we had to find a home for this for these four gigantic rolls while we, while we were in, in in the course of renovations and so Mystic Seaport Museum in Mystic Connecticut graciously accepted the panorama to store it until we were ready to take it back again and during that time we uh, evaluated all of its history that we had and all of our curatorial files and and you know, the, the, set, the staff were fully aware that this painting needed attention and so we raised the money and we put the resources into it and we restored the painting and as and as part of the you know part of uh, the grant from uh, from Uncle Sam uh, we're going to put this painting on exhibit. So that's what we did. And you can go to the Kilburn Mill at the end of Route 18 in New Bedford, Massachusetts, and walk up the 53 steps to the third floor <laughs> of the building and go in and for free see this spectacular uh, spectacular piece of American history. It's a great thing. Absolutely. And um, is that it's, is, is it going to be its permanent home there? or do you No. No, it's there until, uh, until about October 10th. Um, let me just give you a little, a little bit. I mean, we were talking about we were talking about the islands of the uh, of the Atlantic. So you know, the Azores are beautifully painted. Cape Verde is beautifully painted, including the eruption of Fogo volcano in 1847. Uh, the entire city of Rio Janeiro is painted in detail. The passage of Cape Horn. Um, uh, Crusoe's Island, you know, Robinson Crusoe's Island of Juan Fernandez is painted. Pitcairn's Island, where the Bounty Mutineers uh, uh, sought refuge. Hawaii, the Marquesas, Tahiti, the northwest coast of North America, all of these places. Uh, and many, many, many scenes in between are, are drawn in, uh, in great detail. And it's one of the more fascinating aspects of the painting because you know, I've been tasked with being the narrator for this thing. And so I, I've, I've got to, had, to, had to get into the head of the artist to make a determination of what was the message? What was it exactly that Benjamin Russell wanted people to know about this industry? Uh, and, and how entertaining was this painting supposed to be to people who would pay their money to come and sit there for a couple hours and, and see this thing? Absolutely. Um, Mentioned the Azores. I'm going to say that's the best p part that's painted, just because that's where my family's from. <laughs> my it's a very beautiful section. No two ways about it. Yeah. Oh yeah, my mother was from uh, St. Michael. My dad's from Trasada. So we well, unfortunately, San Miguel is on the is on the horizon. You can't see San Miguel, but you can see Horta up close. Horta, yeah, absolutely. And uh, so, w where's uh, where's uh, the panorama's next destination? Where is it going? What's the future of it look like? <sighs> It's going to go on the road. It's going to travel. But unfortunately, I do not know what the venue, what venues are in the are are are, are to be selected. I, I I just I don't know that. I just know that that it, uh, sections of the panorama are definitely going to go, and uh, and digitally, uh, it's also going to travel digitally. So we're we're going out to Stanford. Uh, university in California to to do a, a, a two-day symposium on on the panorama uh, and it's going to be exhibited digitally but uh, but the the actual panorama will be traveling I believe that it's going to go to Mystic Seaport at the very least some of it's going to go to Mystic Seaport because the Charles W. Morgan is painted in the in the channel between Pico Island and Horta Fayal 
that Charles W. Morgan is, is painted in the channel there, in the panorama. And, and of course, you know, the Charles W. Morgan still survives. It's the oldest surviving merchant ship afloat in the world, and it's at Mystic Seaport. And uh, so, you know, there, that section of the, of the painting will be on exhibit, I believe. Absolutely. All right. So we're <coughs> a little bit uh, – so we talked about the panorama. Is there anything other uh, – what else does the New Bedford Whaling Museum – uh, do what do they have? What are some of the the great exhibits that you guys? Well, we're, we're the we're the New Bedford Whaling Museum, but we're also the Old Dartmouth Historical Society, and so we tell the story, the regional story. Uh, we have an exhibition that's opening up in September that focuses on Paul Cuffey, the great. Uh, he was a he was the son of a son of a slave, um, and uh, and uh, a Wampanoag woman, and Paul Cuffey in the 18th century uh, became a Quaker. <laughs> he also became an entrepreneur. And he also became a advocate for civil rights uh, and, uh, and the fair treatment of people of color. And, um, uh, and, he, and he was a, a vehement anti-slavery um, anti uh, voice at a time when those voices were really beginning to be taken seriously uh, in uh, in in the U.S. and elsewhere in the world, so that's a, that's a really important exhibit. You know, the story of, of Paul Cuffey. That's going to be coming up in September. But we have you know we've got the world's greatest collection of scrimshaw. We have the finest collection of, of Dutch marine paintings, uh, whaling paintings for certain in, in North America. Um, we have wonderful ship models. We have you know all of the craft of whaling harpoons and lances and boarding knives and spades and blubber hooks and tripods and all that stuff. Uh, we have all that. Um, we have the, the world's largest collection of logbooks and journals, and that's, you know, that's what my book is about. It's, it's about the illustrations that appear in, in uh, whaling, whalemen's journals, uh, which, is a, which is a subject that's only been, uh, only been studied uh, very sparsely in, in American maritime history. Absolutely. And um, so you mentioned your book. Let's, let's transition into uh, your book. Uh, could you give our listeners um, background, a synopsis? Uh, what, 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 first of all, what's the, the name of your book? So well, the, the title of the book is Or the Wide and Trackless Sea, Original Art of the Yankee Whale Hunt. Alrighty, righty. And, and what, if you give uh, our listeners a brief synopsis of it, what, what would be the summary of your, your, your book? It... it, it it describes the process of uh, Mariner's illustration, and it highlights some of the hidden gems of whaling art that the public will never, ever get to see. Only museum curators and librarians know what's in these, these collections. And so I, I took it upon myself to, uh, to, to create a, a scholarly text uh, that's also beautifully illustrated um, that that brings some of these pictures out for people to see them. And, and uh, you, there are you know, 300 of them. So, you know, there's a lot of, uh, a lot of illustrations of whaling in, uh, in that book. Absolutely. I, I always mention to uh, my friends that I went to uh, school in D.C. for a little bit, and I made it a goal to, uh, I was at GW, and I made it a goal to see all the Smithsonian's. And so I just loved, I was always fascinated with museums. And then when I had the opportunity, um, for the radio show, I started thinking museums are a great place to start for an educational program. So that's when I started reaching out to all the different museums. And uh, as you mentioned, some of the stuff that's in your book is only in museums. Because, and that's why I kind of wanted to have this program to 
to push out that that educational information. Well, I think it's a brilliant program. I mean, you're doing a fantastic job. Thank you, thank you. Um, What what motivated you? uh, How how did the idea of this book happen? Because what what was the driving factor that said I'm going to write this this book? (laughs) Exposure. 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 Just knowing what was in these, uh, I, and there was another. There was another mo- motivating factor, and that was that uh, o- over over the years, publishers have used the same whaling pictures over and over and over and over. And one of my jobs was processing whaling images. And I, you know, uh, people would ask for the same three or four whaling images, and I know for a fact that there's 3,200 more of them that nobody's ever that they people don't even know about. Uh, plus, on top of that. Uh, again, you know, it's it's you know, access to collections in, in, in museums is extremely important. If no one knows what's there, then no one knows what's there. They can't use it. They can't think about it. There's no opportunity to to expand the 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 horizons of a subject matter. And so, you know, I really did want to bring that art uh, out for people to see it and to think about it. Um, and uh, and we had the greatest we had the greatest collection of that those kind of materials that there is. Now I did borrow some pieces from uh, from the Martha's Vineyard Museum and from the Providence Public Library, the Nicholson Whaling Collection at the Providence Public Library has some very beautiful illustrated journals, and so does Mystic Seaport, and so does the Nantucket Historical Association and, and Yale University. And so you know I did my homework and uh, and really found some of the uh, some some of the greatest examples there are out there. Absolutely. Thank you. Uh, Alrighty, folks, we're live with uh, Mr. Michael Dyer, who is the curator of maritime uh, history at the New Bedford Whaling Museum. We're talking about his book, Or the Wide and uh, Trackless Sea, Original Art of uh, the Yankee Whale Hunt. And we're going to take a quick break, and then we're going to come back and talk a little bit more about maybe some specific paintings um, and different artwork uh, in his book. So we'll be right back after these messages. Are you looking for an opportunity to help others and give back to your community? Community VNA is seeking volunteers to join our interdisciplinary team dedicated to supporting patients and their families during a difficult time in their lives. Applications are now being accepted for our upcoming hospice volunteer training. A 20-hour orientation program will be held Tuesdays and Thursdays, September 6th through September 27th from 9 a.m. to noon at Community VNA. 10 Emory Street in Attleboro. To learn how you can make a difference in the life of another, call Community VNA Hospice at 508-222-0118 or visit www.communityvna.com. Staying at home, surrounded by family and friends, resting comfortably with your illness under control, and support for your family caregivers. That's what most Americans want at Life's End. Hospice can make it happen. With the help of hospice, patients and families alike can focus on what's most important, enjoying life together and living as fully as possible. Feel free to contact Community VNA Hospice at 508-222-0118. You can also visit communityvna.com for more information. As humans, we ask ourselves all kinds of questions. But what if we were forced to ask ourselves a question every day that affected the outcome of the most basic things, the most important things in our lives? The question is, what is your sexual orientation or gender identity? And the answer is the difference between keeping your job or getting fired. 
The answer is the difference between staying in your home or getting evicted. The answer is the difference between receiving medical treatment or not. Because in 31 states, it's legal to discriminate against people based on their answer to this question. LGBT Americans have the right to say, I do, but they don't have the same basic rights as everyone else. Get the facts at beyondido.org. Brought to you by the Gill Foundation and the Ad Council. Alrighty, folks, welcome back to the Paulo Salguero Show. We're in studio with uh, Mr. Michael Dyer, who is the curator um, of maritime history at the New Bedford Whaling Museum. We're talking, currently, we're talk, we talked about uh, immigration with the uh, whaling industry. We talked about the grand panorama that they have uh, on exhibit, uh, which is it's fascinating the, the, how large this this painting is. Um, you know, it's the, the length of 14 blue whales, roughly. Uh, but we're talking about his book. And uh, Mr. Dye, could you talk a little bit about, because when these painters went on these voyages, they, they kept journals, and, and you mentioned that in, uh, in your book. Could you talk a little bit about what these journals were, w- w- uh, what, what they wrote about, and kind of maybe some experiences that some of the things that they actually wrote in these journals that they kept? Sure, there's a difference between logbooks and journals. A logbook is an, is an official document kept by the first mate uh, of, the, of the daily uh, activities on shipboard. A personal journal, a journal is like a diary, and anybody can keep a journal and write anything in it that they want to. Uh, and many, uh, many young men illustrated theirs, and they illustrated them variously, but the ones that, really, uh, that I really focused on in the book were those that... that that have full-blown whaling illustrations in them because there's a lot to learn from 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 the art uh, if you're interested in in the subject matter uh, the in the 1820s and 30s and 40s there was a strong likelihood that it that a, a talented and skilled young man could um, and actually there are some there are some women too uh, whaling whalemen's um, Whaling masters' wives, who who kept some illustrated journals, some very beautiful ones too, but but the, the young men very often kept these as um, uh, this this was a career option. You know, this was this was not not an option. This was this was this was a career choice, and these guys were keeping track of their experiences, and very often they did it pictorially. So some of these journals. Uh, are actually illustrated abstracts of their experiences. So in the front half of the of the journal, there will be a, a daily accounting of the affairs of the voyage, and if something interesting happens, there will be a there'll be a drawing. You know, if a whale was taken, there will be a little drawing of a sperm whale or a right whale or a bowhead in the margin. But then in the back of the book, sometimes you'll see there will be abstracts. You know, where uh, you have a latitude and longitude uh, and a description of the of the of the capture of, of a very large whale or uh, a, a whole pod of sperm whales uh, were, uh, were chased, but none of them were taken. And the latitude and longitude is kept track of. And so this keeping track of where whales were seen, where they were taken, how large they are, what season of the year this was, this is how information was, was compiled that allowed a commercial industry to flourish. In many ways, it came down to, to this sort of personal information. So someone who's you know, going to pursue a career as a whaleman um, uh, c- we, we'll keep 
will keep journals, and sometimes they're illustrated. And we have some superb group collections, you know, of an individuals, uh, individuals, um, uh, you know, individuals' diaries. Wonderful. Is there a, a specific artist or a, a whaleman that stands out to you? One of your favorite paintings, or something you're fascinated about in your book? Yeah. There's a there's a there's a there's a group of illustrators uh, that were working in the 1840s and 50s from Provincetown, believe it or not, um, and these Provincetown whalemen illustrated their journals, and we had a we acquired as a gift a large collection of illustrated journals and abstracts kept by a man named Joseph Washington Tuck of Provincetown uh, in the 1840s and the early 1850s, and he illustrated everything. And he illustrated when whales were caught, when whales were missed, how large the schools were, how large the animals were, what were the details of the capture, uh, if people were injured, um, you know, how, 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 how many barrels of oil the whale made, what were the tools that were used to cut it in. So, I mean, this, this fella really documented almost encyclopedic fashion. <laughs> uh, and what's curious, what came out of this research is that Say, take Provincetown. Provincetown is an excellent example compared to Sag Harbor, New York. At the very, at the very tip of Long Island is a really important American whaling port of Sag Harbor. There's no tradition of, of illustration in Sag Harbor. So of all the Sag Harbor logbooks and journals that we have, none of them are illustrated. Of our collection of Provincetown whaling logbooks and journals, it's the odd one that isn't illustrated. And so that that's a curiosity, I think, and I, I like thinking about that, how traditions develop in certain places and they don't develop in other places. You know, some of the best illustrated whaling journals come from, you know, Warren, Rhode Island, for heaven's sake. Interesting. And uh, is, there, uh, is there a specific part of the whaling? Uh, how did your passion for whaling history even, even start? Where did it all begin? It started because I didn't know anything about it. Um, <laughs> Maritime history for me came alive when I was 14 years old in the summertime. I walked over to York Suburban Junior High School and went to their library, and they were open for the summer, and I found a copy of a book that I wanted to read, and it was called Two Years Before the Mass by Richard Henry Dana, Jr., and I read it when I was 14, and it was it just caught my imagination thoroughly, and, uh, and I loved reading sea, uh, sea literature. After that, I read Moby Dick um, when I was 19. Uh, I've read it every year since then, and uh, I'm in my 50s now, so I've read Moby Dick a whole lot of times. Um, uh, and, you know, whaling just really captured, uh, captured my interest, um, and, I, so, and, and museums captured my interest. So, you know, there were, there were, there were several good whaling museums in, in the U.S., and, and uh, I applied as an intern at the Kendall Whaling Museum and at Mystic Seaport and did internships at both institutions and I was hired at the Kendall Whaling Museum in 1993 which is right up the street you know, it was in Sharon yeah. Mass right up the street here from Attleboro yeah, uh, that's where that's where that uh, that museum was and how many uh, whaling museums are are there today uh, well there are one two three four five or six it's typically the coast, I'm assuming. Are they on oh, yeah. the coasts? Yeah. Because mm -hmm. yeah, it was interesting. We talked a little bit, too, um, on the phone prior to the, the the interview. And I was saying, we talked a little bit about Hawaii and how there's a Portuguese population in Hawaii, too. And when I was doing my research, that surprised me. 
because I, I had you know I, I knew Northern California, the New England, we had a strong Portuguese population, but it was also the whaling industry was also they had roots not roots, but there's some whaling history in Hawaii too. Oh, most definitely. I mean, Hawaii was a destination. You know, a lot of a lot of uh, a lot of Yankee whalers wound up in in Hawaii, and uh, you know, Cape Verdean or, or Azorean mariners would send for their families, and then these uh, there were as agriculture grew in uh, in Hawaii, the need for um, the need for inexpensive labor also um, also grew, and and many many Cape Verdean uh, men. Uh, went there to work in uh, in Hawaii, in you know in San Diego, California, and on the on the coast of California, there was, there was a lot of Azorians, uh, whalemen, Yankee whalemen, settled there and began whaling from shore on the coast of of California, and 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 the, some of those traditions grew into uh, you know commercial fishing to, uh, today. The whaling wasn't wasn't that. Wasn't, it was okay, but it wasn't great, uh, and they just you know they just transitioned into into other uh, other other fields of, of maritime trade. Yeah, what's what's the current state of the whaling industry? I, I would assume it, it must be somewhat limited now than it was prior. Oh heavens, yes. <laughs> um, there is some subsistence whaling going on in the world. So uh, the the North Slope of Alaska. Uh, there are um, there are native uh, native groups who still hunt whales and eat them. Um, uh, in Japan, there is a small type coastal fishery. Uh, there's also some uh, some modern whaling going on out of Japan. Uh, in Iceland, uh, there is a modern whale fishery uh, for profit commercial industry in Iceland. Um, and uh, there there used to be. There used to be a, uh, a whale fishery in the island of Bequi in the Grenadines in, uh, in the West Indies. And I'm not 100% sure if they're still whaling there or not. I think they, they may be hunting humpback, humpback whales there for food. Yeah, that's what, that was my next question. Is the primary source for this whaling, is the primary reason rather uh, uh, food-wise, or are they still using it for uh, maybe some of the resources that they can get from these specific No, it's, it's food. It's, it's, it's all food. You know, even, even the Icelandic uh, whale fishery is still, is, is still for food. And, uh, you know, I, I've, eaten, uh, I've eaten whale meat prepared in Norway when I was at a whaling symposium in Sandefjord, Norway, uh, we went to a restaurant and whale was served. It was served raw, and it was, uh, it was you know, it was pretty fantastic. It was, it, was a, it was a beautiful meal. I've also been hunting with the Eskimos on the north slope of Alaska and, and have been served whale meat uh, there, and uh, it wasn't really that good. Um, <laughs> well, what was that experience like, hunting uh, for it? What was that? Uh? Well, I, I, didn't, I wasn't whaling. I, oh, okay. was, I was hunting seals. Oh, okay. Um, it, was a, uh, it was an immersion program. And uh, I, I went to Barrow uh, for a couple of weeks, two or three weeks, and we camped out on the tundra and we hunted seals. And the seals, the hides of the seals were to be used uh, to make skin boats. And so we were hunting seals for, um, for, for their hide for their, to make skin boats. Interesting. For the spring whaling, because the, the, the whaling in the springtime relies on, on, uh, on skin umiaks, 
Absolutely. How does uh, I've never had it. How does what does uh, whale meat taste like? If you had to kind of compare it to something, well, or is it just? I'll tell you. Uh, I can tell you what seal tastes like. What does that taste like? Have you ever been on a mud flat at low tide? I have not. Well, I, I, yes, I have. You know the smell of a mud flat at low tide? <laughs> That's what seal meat tastes like. Oh. Uh, the, 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 the whale meat that was, pre- that, that was prepared in, um, in Alaska tasted very similar to that. It was very, very strong, very, very fishy, and not particularly good. Um, in Norway, the, it tasted like meat. It tasted like red meat, um, and that yeah. was all it tasted like, uh, oh. and it was you know, really, uh, really quite nice. Interesting. We're getting down to our. We're getting down to the last uh, six minutes. But I'd like to. So maybe, what's your favorite part of whaling history? What is it that? What's one aspect huh. that fascinates? The discovery. The discovery. The discovery. Every time I think I know something, uh, some document will come in. Some piece of scrimshaw will come in. Some piece of, um, some logbook or journal will come in that'll that'll completely change what i thought i knew and so it it's it's ongoing it's constant it's a it is it is an endless source of discovery um uh, that just never it never stops it's you know <laughs> history is the most slippery of subjects because you know y- you listen to people like me pontificating on the radio <laughs> about this that and the other aspect of history well the thing is is that it's very fluid and what i say uh, today uh, could change tomorrow. You know, when 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 some uh, you know some other uh, ass, you know fascinating uh, document or, or artifact comes out of somebody's attic and comes you know into our museum. Absolutely, well, we're going to be wrapping up. But there's one more question I like to ask. I at the end of our shows, if I have enough time, I like to make kind of ask like a fun question, a little maybe a little off topic. But uh, since you're good uh, history too, you have a little background on it. Um, if you could talk to uh, anyone in history and ask them one question who would you want to talk to and what would you want to ask them I'd want to talk to Mark Twain and I want to ask him uh, what are, to elaborate a little bit on the on his experiences as a steamboat uh, pilot in the Mississippi River just tell me more about that I read life on the Mississippi and 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 I loved it but I, I love I'd love to hear it right right from 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 you i'd like to hear what you have to say about that wonderful and uh if someone's interested in your book what's the title of it uh, again it's uh, or the wide and trackless sea original art of the yankee whale hunt interesting and, and uh if they want to visit the new bedford whaling museum how uh, what, what was the oh that's uh, easy um you know it's open seven days a week nine to five absolutely and what's the uh the address uh 18 johnny cake hill uh new bedford massachusetts oh www.whalingmuseum.org wonderful so if you guys if anyone out there is interested feel free to uh look it up uh, i know i'm going to try and take a trip out there to see the the grand panorama um mr dyer again i'd like to thank you uh for coming on and uh being willing to be interviewed for the this segment i think uh, i know i sure did learn a lot and i'm sure our listeners uh, learned a lot too so i'd like to thank you one more time for for coming in you're very welcome and thank you for the invitation paulo wonderful already folks uh well that's going to wrap it up for us today again this is the polo salguero show we run uh, every wednesday night uh, from seven to nine where the goal of our show is to educate our listeners our, the mission is to have our listeners have learned something new by the end of the show that's going to wrap it up for us and we'll I'll see you again next week thank you all right nicely done